to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? So I'm really glad to be here. Um, you heard a little bit of my intro. I'm originally from Albany, New York. I uh, spent all my years in there pastoring. I've moved down uh, to Virginia now, so you might detect that southern accent that I have now. It's, uh, it's growing on me a little bit. We're down in a place called Mineral, kind of right between Richmond and Charlottesville, and we're we're learning. I've learned that I talk too fast. I've had three people down south tell me, you need to slow down when you speak, son. And so I'm, it's never going to happen. So I'm glad to be in the Northeast again where I can speak normally at a quick tempo and where sarcasm is also a love language. So it's, it's good to be home that way. So I'm going to tell you really quickly, um, one, that was a, a terrific passage that was read, but we were off by one chapter. So we're going to be looking at Acts 17. Um, and, and not 16, but man, I, I wasn't sure as I was sitting there, I'm like, should I just pick up and preach on 16? Because that's such a great chapter to have. But we're, we're going to be in 17. Uh, and what I want us to think about is the, the various roles that we exist in at once as Christians in a church. See, a job is easy if you just have one thing to do, one way to face, one task, right? Like I'm, I'm a married guy, I've been married 32 years. I know my job is, I'm with her, I take care of her. I look after Diane, I'm a friend, family member, and fan of Diane's, right? Like, that's, that's easy. Church faces a lot of ways, and we have to continue to check, how am I doing with all these ways? Let me suggest that there are at least three in the big buckets that we're gonna be looking at. We're the church that's already elevated. Remember where your scripture said, you have been seated at the right hand. There's a place where God's prophecies are so sure that they just overlap with promise, they're the same thing. If he said it, we don't have to be anxious and be like, is is that really going to happen? Nope, you're already seated in the heavenlies, so real, he says. And there's a place where we're supposed to live that way. We're supposed to live out of where we are and will be, the eternal spot. Then there's an internal spot. It looks like this, right? It's, the, it's the, what I like to call the church monastic. When we gather together, we agree on the same rules. We, we have the word together. And when we're in here, it feels right. When I meet people anywhere in the churches that I'm speaking at, I love when we're singing, hearing the word together. We're praying for each other, meeting one another. It's like, oh, this is a relief. It doesn't feel like we're in a cultural battle the entire time. We, we have our space. That's the church monastic. And then, as Pastor Stephen mentioned, there's that mission side to us, the church missional. And that's where I really want to focus today. Because if we just have the first two, that eternal standing and that internal community, it can be really tempting to stay there and incredibly dangerous, if not just wasteful, if we stay right there. You can feel real good to know that I'm fine and that I'm with other people who love the church, love the Christian way of doing life, love Jesus. But you know what that can become? That can become a cul-de-sac spiritually. It can just become the dead end that we're safe on. If you live on a cul-de-sac, you like that because it doesn't connect to anywhere, right? But the gospel's meant to be a highway on-ramp, and we can miss the on-ramp for the sake of those things. So today, as we consider those calls, I I want us to look back a little bit where 
The church was once the center of American life, and I think that's where we can fall out of the mindset of being missionaries because we can drive from the rearview mirror and say, but the church used to be really important. Do you know in Massachusetts, the the village green for the church was sort of the the common place for the towns in many places in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Like that that was it. The, the, The cities, the town's front lawn was the church's front lawn. There were towns where if the government was created during those times, they would just say, well, let's just take the elders and move them into the select men of our town positions because we already know how to rule those things. Can you imagine if people did that today in Boston and said, hey, we want our city council just to be picked from pastors uh, throughout the greater Boston area. What What a different city we would live in. But that's the past. It doesn't really seem like that anymore. And, and if you look at studies by, by guys like Barner who are kind of quantifying where are the churches that are biblically, or the people that are biblically illiterate that don't go to church, maybe they used to, but they don't now, and they're least likely? It's all in the Northeast. People have been talking about for years, post-Christianity's coming, and I hear guys in the South and Midwest saying to me, man, I can see the edges of it. I said, well, we've been here for 15 years. Uh, when I was pastoring in Troy, New York, I was having dinner at a Mexican-Irish restaurant, love the mix, and I'm sitting there talking to a friend of mine who was a non-Christian editor of a newspaper, and he was asking great questions. He said, man, I know that I don't know these things. I'm supposedly studied, I just don't know them. Can you explain? I said, well, you know, as a pastor and a waitress who is not my waitress, as soon as I said pastor, stuck her finger in my face and started chewing me out in front of the whole restaurant. How can you believe these things? It's so mean, blah, blah. I've never met her, never seen her in my life. But that wasn't the important part. The part that struck me was no one stopped. Not one of the other waiters or waitresses said, whoa, 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 just let that man enjoy his meal. You shouldn't be. The manager didn't do anything. What I learned that day was in the northeast of the United States, in North America, it was socially acceptable to chew out a Christian in public. No, No one blinked. That's a different world. So how do we reconnect? How do we close the gap with someone who's so angry they can't meet me? They they just want to chew me out and never have the conversation. Well, here's the roadmap for today that I want us to look at. First, we're going to look at what God has called the people of God to. Because there is a forever call that in either one of the great divides, new or old covenant, you're going to see that God's heart is always a heart for the other. It's a call to Israel to become these people of light. Then we're going to walk with St. Paul to the the missionary world of the pre-Christian world. And let me suggest this. As we're in this post-Christian world that we're not inventing the culture anymore, we're just watching this thing spin out of control, we can't reach back 20 years and go, oh, that's how we did it. We can't reach back 50 years or 100 years. We need to go back farther to the pre-Christian world and say, God, what do you have for us today? Because I can tell you, it's disorienting. It is a different world than some of us remember growing up in terms of the church. And so we're going to take a look at Paul being that famous missionary uh, statesman to the pre-Christian world and see what we can learn. Finally, as we follow him, we're going to end up on Mars Hill, uh, the place that was the center of Athens' ideas. So what I'm going to do is uh, kind of refer to that passage in Acts 17, but if you want to turn there, 16 through 34, I'll refer to there once in a while when we get into the places. But first, let me just pray over the word. And then we're going to go follow Israel a little bit for a minute. Father, thanks for time together with brothers and sisters in Christ, with friends who have gathered here as well. We ask, Lord, that as we take a minute, um, time that we could have spent sleeping in, going somewhere else, doing some other thing, but we've, we've decided to give to these people and to you 
and maybe even to this city. We ask, God, that you would work in our hearts in ways that are not under our control, that are not by our design, that by the power of your spirit, you would direct the heart of each man, woman, and child in this room as you know we need to be led. In Jesus' name, amen. The people of God were always meant to be a light. If you have God living within you, how could it be any other way? It's not by accident that people will say to you sometimes, and you're really kind. How'd you get to be so kind? I love the fact that you're involved in helping other people. How are you like that? That's the light that we're supposed to carry. Think about it from the beginning with Abraham. Abraham's the prototype pilgrim. He's the first man of faith. He's the father of all the people of God. And what was he supposed to do? Be a blessing to all nations through him. God's heart was for this entire world to be blessed by his people following him faithfully. Still our calling. In Exodus, Moses will lead the people out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery and bondage. And when he leaves in Exodus 12 and other places, says he's with a mixed multitude. That Egyptians actually joined the freed slaves in now worshiping God and seeking to build a new community in a promised land. That's the light. In the prophet Isaiah, the greatest, largest of the major prophets in chapter 42 and 49, Isaiah will say it really plain. You need to be a light to the Gentiles. One of our jobs facing outward is to be a light to everybody. This is not just an Old Testament thing. If you think to yourself, he's hanging out on the left-hand side of the Bible. Jesus says, you're supposed to be a city on a hill, shining, uncovered, drawing people. So how do we re-engage? Well, this may be the most obvious thing a preacher says in a Christian church all day. It's by following after Jesus. The incarnation was God's great plan of missionary entry into this world, was it not? And it says in John 1.14 that he, he entered among us, and John says, we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He was present among them. It's the, it's the same word in the Greek that's used in the Old Testament translations in Greek of the tabernacle, that place that was the location of God, the place where you could find him. The Bible says Jesus was there full of grace and truth. And what I'm going to say is, man, we need to become that again. If you don't have presence and you want to throw truth at people, you're just going to be a person who's, who's out there throwing pieces of of oddly printed literature at people and then walking away and feeling somehow self-satisfied. I I get it. There's a place for that. And I'm not knocking people who do random drive-by evangelism. Some of the earliest memories of me considering the gospel was being at Shea Stadium, someone handing me a a track from Jews for Jesus with a scorecard. I'm like, I could use a scorecard. And on the back, it had this thing about the greatest comeback ever was in the bottom of the ninth on Calvary for Humanity. Okay, I'm just going to tell you, I was angry. My, my brother's like, man, why are you angry? It's about God. I'm like, I just want to watch baseball. What are these people doing? They're ruining my day. That's just where my heart was at that time. But, but as we reach out, we need to become those people who can well do that. So let's, let's move to my second point today, exchanging the city for the synagogue. That's what happens with St. Paul. Look at Acts 17, verse 16. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. 
and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. But that's the line that makes the passage in this first century feel like the internet age in America in the 21st century. Oh, what's the new thing? What's trending now? How can I hear about what I haven't heard about before? We, we live in the same spots. The props change, the stage change, but the story of the play is still the same. And here's Paul. Now remember Paul's background. It'll say in Philippians that he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's got a bloodline. Pastor Steve mentioned that I'm half a time. My father was off the boat Italian. And my wife has learned if someone mentions Italy being Italian, it's gonna happen. There's a series of things I will say. She realized someone just dropped the quarter and pressed the jukebox. My husband is not gonna talk about what Italy did and how amazing we were in Western civilization. And she's just gonna have to endure it while it happens. That's what Paul's doing. He's going, look, out of my people and every people have things that they can be greatly proud of. Here's my highlight. I'm born of the right tribe. I studied under Gamaliel. That may mean nothing to you, but when that man died, when they gave a eulogy and, and gave him tribute, what they said was, the light of the Torah shines more dimly now. Can you imagine having that said about you at your funeral? With that sister or that brother gone, we're not going to see the light of the Bible like we used to see. What a thing to have said of you. And that's, that's Paul's teacher. This guy's saying, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So when he began being a missionary in this Greek world, it's no surprise he ends up in the synagogues. We saw, as was his custom, he's preaching in the synagogues. Why wouldn't he? He knows the order of worship. He knows when the scrolls are picked up. He knows what they say. It is home field advantage. So for us, that would be us talking in churches, maybe churches that uh, don't understand the gospel. And we would just say, well, at least I'm, I'm safe here. It's small, it's compartmentalized. That's how it was in the Grecian world if you were just gonna hang out the synagogues. You were reaching a sliver of people. And then it says, while they're passing through and in Athens, he's waiting. Now I think the church fathers had a lot to say and one of the early theologians I like said the waiting is the hardest part. That was Father Tom Petty had said that. And I think there's something true about that. Waiting is difficult for us as human beings to be told you have to sit and not do anything. I'm just gonna be really honest, at least for me as a guy, that is an invitation to start unfinished projects because I don't wait well, right? I'm like a bee in a box. I'm like, okay, I gotta do something. But let me encourage you as a brother in that journey, sometimes it's in that waiting moment that God has us doing nothing so we can see something we couldn't imagine or do ourselves. If you fill your waiting, with your own inventions of busyness, whether it's watching shows just to fill the time, doing what you're good at because you just enjoy that and don't wanna see something else, you, you may miss things. It's the waiting that makes Paul then look outside 
and he sees the whole city's full of idols. The, the synagogue might not be, he felt safe there. The, the church might not be falling apart the way the world is, but if you walk around with open eyes in this world, we should have the moment Paul had as missionaries. This should be utter heartbreak. When you pass men, women, and children who are on paths on which they were never meant to be by their creator, what were things that we were once told to avoid that would be harmful for us are celebrated and our children pointed there. We have a real problem. We can react a couple ways. We can try if we want to, to just numb ourselves and say, there's too much brokenness in the world, man. I can't deal with that. I'm just gonna roll my windows up and drive with that thousand yard stare and I'm not gonna see the suffering to my left or right. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to do anything. We can act defeated and just walk away from it and say, we, we lose, I'm gonna go move out to the middle of nowhere and just have a shack out there. We can do a little thing and pretend it was a big thing. I gave a dollar and some scope and that was the end of that and I felt real good about it that. Or we can actually do what's happening in us anyway. We can let our hearts break. And if your heart has not been broken in this world for a while, I would encourage you to do something an older pastor told me to do now and again. He said, read the worst news stories of your day someday. Spend about an hour or two doing it. I hate it. It's one of the most painful exercises in my spiritual life because I end up in tears, right? I'm Italian and Irish, so I only have two channels. Either I weep openly or I press things for 800 years. That's like, that's all I have. And I'll read these things and, and I feel like Paul a little bit. My heart provoked within me. If you can't have your heart provoked, you'll never be a missionary. You just won't because you won't care about what you're doing. And it makes him get intellectually engaged. It says he goes out and he's talking with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I have a brother who teaches philosophy at NYU, and he might not like the way I simplistically bring these two philosophical camps down to nothing, but here, here's what I see them. One group said, this is the Stoics, it'll all be over soon, so don't do anything stupid. The Epicureans say, it'll all be over soon, so make sure you enjoy cake every minute of your life, right? These are the two philosophies that Paul finds himself dealing with. What doesn't he do is really important. He doesn't throw a Bible verse at them to show them they're wrong and walk away. You can feel self-satisfied if you do that, right? You just, I, I nailed those Jehovah's Witnesses. They now know what I know and walk away. Right? Well, that's not going to do it. He listens to them and then presents what he has. He's present. He's graciously present hearing them out. And then he's truthfully present telling them what he believes. And because of that, they invite him to the Areopagus. See, so many times we're desperate to get people to our table. And it's a good thing to say to your friends and neighbors, come to church. A lot of them honestly are waiting for an invite. They've done surveys of people who are unchurched and said they might go if someone invited them. That's on us to actually be able to say, man, we'd love for you to come. Why don't we grab brunch? I, I always baited the hook with food when I would invite people to church. We'll grab brunch, we'll go to church first. Then we'll grab brunch and we'll have eggs and bacon and just kind of do it that way and bring them in and let the word of God do it. But he gets invited to their table. That's a different big win for the church. He's not just saying, come into the synagogues. I'll be there. I'll talk about these things. He gets invited to the place of their ideas. He gets a seat at the culture's table. He's moved from an us-them mentality, which is what angry reactionary Christianity will do, right? Our balance is thrown off, and you guys need to stop doing this because it's upsetting to me. That's, that's one way to handle things poorly. That's not him. He gets invited to their place. Final and third point then is what Paul does when he's in that place. This place called the Areopagus. 
the American church has to jettison its past and all the sentimentality of it if we're going to live with accepting that we need to be at somebody else's table and somebody else's culture and be able to have a voice at that table. Now, we're right here in New England. Puritan pulpits are museum pieces now. You might as well put a velvet rope around them and have tourists take pictures. But the voices of those men echo thunderously like ghosts from a past, telling us the things that are most true. But the churches aren't full anymore. We have to stand in culture. We have to be present in our day, not present in the day that was for our fathers, grandfathers, or great-grandfathers. We find as he's invited there, he's incredibly gracious among them. Look at verse 22 in chapter 17. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. I can't think of a more positive spin that someone could put on open idolatry than, man, you guys are very religious. What a gracious thing. He doesn't come up and say, you know, these are stupid. These were made by artisans. You guys know that. You bought these. these. These can't answer your prayers. You paid for them. They didn't pay for it. He doesn't do that. He gets down on his knees, practically speaking as though they are spiritual children, said, you guys believe in something. I can tell it's really important to you, and it's this one that I want to talk about. It's true, but I want to talk about some things that are really truer within them. He, he finds a point in the culture where Christianity can become like a wedge. Um, confessions of outdated crimes. When I was a high school student, uh, some friends of mine mainly, not me so much, but friends of mine, uh, used to enjoy hacking computers, right? So some friends got into the University of Minnesota's mainframe, and the way you would do this is you would find a weak point that would let you in, some little unguarded point. The front doors were like iron gates, man, but if you could find this little back channel, you had access to it all. That's what I'm pleading with us as the church to be, to be the kind of missionary men and women who can see the little places where Jesus could step right into this spot. And if he's in this spot, he's going to have access to it all. If I can find the places in culture where I can set Jesus up, where they can see him, I'm not worried about how stupid I am, how sinful I am. Jesus is okay on the playground of ideas. The other gods will fall by the wayside compared to him. And so he gets in there and speaks to them about these things. Let's pick up on his message at verse 25. Actually, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul has to speak to a people who are not just biblically illiterate, they're biblically unaware. Think about how you would do that. How, how do you speak your faith to people without using any of the Bible? 
he's not quoting one Bible verse. Matter of fact, he ends up quoting two things, and they're, they're a cult leader is one guy who's also a poet. He's kind of like a David Koresh meets Walt Whitman and had an angry love child in the ancient Near East. And another guy who writes a poem about what a great God Zeus is, and he just clips around the Zeus stuff and inserts Jesus. I mean, he is a master of understanding this cultural jujitsu and being able to get Christ in places. But he's speaking a biblical narrative, if you caught it. He starts with God's the one who made everything. Where is he? He's in Genesis 1. He knows exactly where he's talking to these people from. God made everything and everyone. He gave them life. You remember in Genesis, as he forms man out of the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. He's giving them the Genesis story of the greatest glory of our God, that he gives life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And he says... He put them in the places where they were meant to be all over the world. He's still preaching Genesis, but for the modern world, where God puts them in the garden, you have life and you belong here. Life and place and meaning that you might reach out for him, but he is not far from any of us. And he supports his statement with those two quotations from those poets. Here's the fascinating piece. He doesn't pull out a scroll and figure out this is what these guys are reading, he knows it, and he knows it by heart. When was the last time you heard popular culture referenced as anything but a, a mark of how bad our culture is going? I mean, he's taking poems about Zeus and making them about Jesus. I, I would argue that we've become somewhat insulated. Now, we have to be careful. There are pieces of culture around us that on any day under God, we just have to say, no, thank you, I, I reject this. There are some that we can just say, yep, this, this was, God gave this to all of us. You guys are doing this right. We can receive that. And there are some pieces, we need to work on this. You've got some good things in there. This needs some remodeling. We can redeem that. There's reject, receive, redeem when we're dealing with culture. Stay away from the reject side. But boy, when you're living in that redeem and receive side, there's a lot of cultural connectivity we can have. So I don't, I don't talk a lot about science illustrations because the church I pastored is right down the hill from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And I tried doing this once. And like three kids from the front row with pocket protectors came up and started correcting my science illustrations. So I'm like, all right. They were like literally rockets. And I, I was a writing major, right? Stuff we learned to do in first grade, I just spent my life trying to perfect, right? These guys are like smart, smart. But here's a science illustration for you. And this is the one that got corrected too. Water conducts electricity, right? You put a wire input on the other side of the water. No, it only conducts it if it has electrolytes. If it's distilled water, it won't, is what I was told when I gave this illustration before. So water with electrolytes conducts electricity. Culture conducts gospel in the same way. If you don't speak to and through a culture, you won't be understood as a missionary. It needs that to connect those words, cues, and artifacts that are familiar. That's why Paul is able to preach these things so well there, because he already knows this as a missionary. The results, well, it's verse 32 through 34. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
All right, so let's begin to break that up a little bit, what happened after he spoke into the culture in ways the culture understood, but then he said very plainly right before that and then Acts 17, hey, but this all comes through Jesus. That's the one man God's gonna judge the whole world through because he realizes he can't quote enough poems to get anyone into heaven. He can't quote enough poems to remove sin, but he knows that the God-man Jesus died for those things, so he brings it up and Man, that's a point where everything will have to change. At some point, you have to boldly cross the line as close as you can get culturally, as much as you can enjoy hanging out to say, but Jesus, but all Jesus, not some Jesus. The results are mixed. Some laugh at him. You know, that's why some of us don't share our faith. Because some of us are actually scared more of what another person will think about our faith than the obligation happily that God has given us to share our faith. I get it. I'm a human being too. There are times where I don't like being the unpopular, stupid, unwelcomed one that people are making jokes about. Some laugh. Sometimes you just need to develop a little bit of thick skin, right? You can, you can handle the laughter because some will want more is what it says. Some said, we'll, we'll talk more about this. Pause button there. Aren't you thankful for Christians who were patient with you? I, I sure am. I remember the man who led me to Christ. He was my wife's pastor because she was dating a non-Christian. But come on, you can't blame her. I, I, it's, it's, been a lot, it's been a lot of years. I had more going on then is all I can say. And this guy would drive an hour, this pastor, to come visit me at my house out in the country and sit with me with his Bible. And I'm asking him questions like, hey, if electricity and water and light are all waves, where does time go? Right? I'm asking him quantum physics questions to this pastor who's like country guy. And he's like, that's a great question, Ed. Let me tell you what Jesus did on the cross. Like, did he not hear me? And he just kept going back there. But he was super patient with me. He must have taken that hour drive a dozen times. I don't know what prompted him to do this except his love for Jesus. People are going to need that from you. And don't write men and women off because they didn't hear you the first time. Don't feel like you did your job and can be satisfied. There's probably a person in your life right now that you need to be patient with again and just be able to sit with them one more time and say, I'd love to hear more from you. I want you to hear more from me about Jesus. And it said, some believe. And it's a man and a woman. It's almost like the Bible is presenting a new Adam and Eve for Athens, right? You got this guy who is an Areopagite. He belongs to this society of the important thinkers of Athens and a woman named Damaris. She has to be a boss woman to have been there in the first place. So these two strong people are now the ones who are left behind. Camera follows Paul. You know, the book of Acts is going to continue to talk about him. We'll never know what happens except that God was ready and then had these people in their place. If we're the church that only cares about us when we come to know him, we are a misguided and dangerous energy. But if we're the church who understands the gratitude of which we worship our God, and that propels us outward to care about the other the way the Father's heart cares about the other, and we're gonna move forward well. Last illustration before I close this up and we pray. We don't think much about electricity unless that's the field you work in. I recognize there are always people who are electricians, electrical engineers. I do a lot of fix-it stuff. I don't touch electricity because the oops factor is way too high than I'm willing to deal with, right? There was a time where they were unsure if we were going to be a direct current society. That was, that was Edison stuff or an alternating current, Tesla, right? The big boys are all playing on that one. 
direct current was unstable. It needed to be recharged every now and again. They had these stations, and every now and then in New York where it was being tested, there were fires would erupt from this thing. But alternating current kept shifting the polarity, and the thing could just go forever smoothly. Church, if we're just monastics, if we just gather, we're dangerous and unstable like direct current. We're trying to live like the church in heaven while we're still on earth. But if we can become the church who lives well together as monastics and go out together as missionaries, and we're going to find we're like alternating current. We're going to have a strength that keeps feeding because the best monastics will bring new people in and they'll become good monastics and they'll be the best missionaries and we'll keep mixing it that way and we'll be stable. Don't be afraid of these times that we live in. I promise you the Lord has seen darker. Remember when it was just Adam and Eve? The whole planet was 100% against God at that point. We still have witnesses who are in this city of Boston and we still have many Yankee fans in the city of Boston, thank the Lord. So what we're gonna do now, I saved it. I, I told my wife, I'm not sure I'm gonna mention God's team or not, but I saved it right to the very end. So thank you for having me here today. I wanna pray for us. Let's